Welcome to the Startup Help Desk. We are here to answer your questions about building businesses, starting businesses, and the meaning of life. All the questions we cover are submitted by founders like you, and we are experienced founders. We've made mistakes, built businesses, and we're here to answer your questions from our shared experience. My name is Sean Burns. I'm a repeat founder of companies like Flurry and Outlier. I've invested in hundreds of companies. I've coached many more, and I've made every mistake in the book. And I'm here to share my experience with you so you don't have to make those same mistakes. I'm joined by some illustrious founders on our Help Desk panel today, Ash and Nick. Hi, everyone. My name is Ash Rust. I'm a pre-seed investor based in San Francisco. I mostly invest in B2B companies based in the US, UK, and Canada through my fund, Sterling Road. I've also worked at other funds like Trinity Ventures and Bullpen Capital as an advisor. And before investing, I was an entrepreneur myself, most notably an early employee at uh, Clout, as well as the co-founder and CEO of SendHub. These days, I spend most of my time coaching founders, and I've helped more than a thousand startups over the years. Hey, this is Nick Meliotis. I'm co-founder and CEO of a startup called Navi. We help folks learn innovation skills, solve mission-critical problems, and start companies. And we have a lot of fun doing it along the way. Prior to Navi, I started a Bitcoin company. This was all the way back in 2013. We were acquired back in 2018 or so. And since then, I've spent my time supporting hundreds of startups and innovators. Thanks so much, as always. And I can't wait to jump into our agenda for the day. And if you were curious, yes, it is true that Nick, having been in Bitcoin so early, does fund this show out of his billions and billions of dollars. We record this in our studios on his private island, which we reach by his private jet. So Nick, as always, thanks for sharing your mountains of wealth with us to make this show a reality. If, if only that were the reality, that would be a fantastic uh, <laughs> lifestyle to be living. That's for sure. Right. And if people want to see what it looks like, they can just go back to the uh, 1960s TV show Thunderbirds and just look at the intro for that. Tracy Island is actually the place that Nick bought with his 2013 Bitcoin winnings. Oh, that is so good. You know what they say about startup companies, guys? The best way to make a fortune in startups is to start with a larger fortune and then start a business and invest in it. So Yes. Okay, let's get going. All of our questions today were submitted by founders just like you. If you have a question, please find us. Our website is thestartuphelpdesk.com or find us on Twitter at thestartuphd. That's thestartuphelpdesk.com as our website or thestartuphd on Twitter. All of our questions today are around building distribution for your product. And I can tell you every second time in multiple time founder, the first thing they're worried about and the last thing they're worried about is distribution. Can you get your product in front of the customers that will buy it, use it, and if you can get distribution, it turns out that is the secret sauce and off the different difference between success and failure. So all of our questions today are on distribution and helping you navigate the distribution maze. So let's get started. Our first question on the queue is, do you build an audience first or do you build your product first? Which is an interesting question. I've never heard it framed that way. Ash and Nick, what do you think? Well, you can do both. You can do either. If you have a lot of talent on your team for building communities, for advertising, for marketing, then you're probably going to want to build audience first. If you have a bunch of people on your team who are engineers and zero audience building expertise, then probably building the product is going to work. So I like to think about it as where your existing talents go. If you feel comfortable generating long wait lists and strong demand 
from just the idea of the product, you can build a community around that, then so be it. A good example might be creating a great Kickstarter campaign with a powerful video and then generating a community from the purchase interest that you generate from that. Or perhaps you're in a crowded market and you need it. You don't really have a, a differentiator beyond user experience. Maybe you're building CRM software. Well, then it might make sense to build first and launch with that innovation so you can generate interest. And perhaps the classic example there is you'd launch that new kind of CRM product on Product Hunt and then from that, get your first 100 users or so. Yeah, I like it. This is one where I do feel very strongly about going audience first. And part of the part of the thought here is ultimately audience versus a high value audience. I look at those as two different things. So you could say you want to build a or you're building a community of 20,000 folks. Might not be a lot of value if these are not well-targeted folks and if they're not particularly interested in your solution versus having a perhaps quite a small audience but a targeted audience that feels the pain for your problem and is ready to be your champion, that's something that can be absolutely invaluable and it can lead to tremendous insights for when it comes time to ultimately build your solution. So I like to start with audience first. It helps you de-risk the biggest risk you face, namely building something that nobody wants. And ultimately, it can help make it possible to then build the solutions that will solve the right problem. So my framework is, Find a problem that you're uniquely suited to solve, start talking to folks, and ultimately start building this initial community, galvanizing these champions, so to speak, that want to see you succeed and want their problem solved. And then ultimately, along the way, once you've got proof that there's demand for your solution, you can then start building and testing your solution. The best part of And you would go audience first, even if you're in a really competitive market even if it might be hard to generate interest in your product without people being able to see it versus just hear what it's about? I would. And obviously, this is picking an example that is perhaps one out of a million. Remember that it was that email startup, and I'm drawing a blank on it, where email, of course, is something that is competitive. There's so many tools and systems out there to support it. And of course, now I'm drawing a blank on the name, but there's been Superhuman. Yes, exactly. It's perfect. So there's been Superhuman plus others who have done an incredible job at building their brand, building their community, really building this huge force of folks that are ready for their solution and want to see them succeed before their product's live, um, perhaps even before they've even started writing their lines of code. And so I look at that and I think that's the model that helps you really manage your risk as a startup founder fully. What's your take well, on that? Well, Ash and Nick, I have, a, I have a question for you. So to be clear, I have always built the audience first in my companies because I find that it's easier to source people for customer discovery. It's easier to learn if you have an audience to draw from. But is there not a danger that if you build the audience first, you build the wrong audience, that the audience you build ends up not being who you actually need to sell or distribute your product to in the end? So are you not incurring a different kind of risk by starting there? I think that happens all the time. The number of B2B companies that I'm working with where they're like, oh, I'm, I'm talking to these small business owners because they're reaching out to me. They're that my inbound leads, so they're the easiest to talk to. When in actual fact, this is probably a product for larger enterprises. It happens all the time. You really can't be guided uh, by just what comes in. It's very dangerous uh, not to be out there uh, trying to find your own customer profiles and testing those out. 
I, th- I think ultimately that is a risk. And the benefit for it, though, is you're exercising this muscle of knocking on doors, building community and getting people motivated and inspired to use your solution. And so the good news is once the train is in motion, so to speak, then you at least have that momentum to be able to test an audience, build within it, figure out if it's the right one, or then adjust to then create your audience and your community elsewhere. Fair enough. I know a lot of founders, experienced founders, that will tell you if you give them an audience, they can build a business from it. But if you give them a product, they're not sure. So that tells you something, I guess, about that founders. is a fair point. But obviously, <laughs> that you can, both of them are required at some point. <laughs> but this audience ain't sticking around forever just because you're a repeat founder. Oh, there's all sorts of metaphors in there somewhere. I'm not sure what we should go for. Okay, let's let's make sure we answer more questions about distribution. Ash, what else is on the question queue for today? All right. So the next one we have is how do you get people interested in your product through cold outreach? How do you get people interested in your product through cold outreach? Let me uh, let me jump in on this one. So first, w- my, my understanding of cold outreach is essentially you're either doing outbound email to people you don't know. So not people in your network. You're reaching out to people who don't know you trying to get their attention for a meeting or get them attention to your product, or you're doing some sort of other outreach. I mean, you could argue that maybe advertising is cold outreach, but essentially your goal is to reach somebody who doesn't know you uh, at all to try to get their attention for your product. At least that's my definition. And so the first thing that you need to understand is that people's attention today is so highly fractured that you're very unlikely to get their attention. So you're going to have to do a lot of outreach to get their attention. And you're more likely to be successful if you focus on where their attention is already directed. So different kinds of audiences have their attention directed in different places. So, you know, teenagers, their attention might be on TikTok versus CMOs of Fortune 500 companies. Their attention may be at conferences or certain books they're reading. Figure out where their attention already is going and find a way to try to attach yourself to that, that's always going to improve your chances. It's very unlikely you're going to get the attention of a Fortune 500 CMO if you send them an email about the latest TikTok video that you like, depending on the business that they're in. The second thing you want to do is if you're going to do cold outreach, they don't know you. So they're probably not going to read it. But even if they did, they're only going to acknowledge it if you immediately appeal to their self-interest. So instead of telling them what you want them to do or what you want them to know, Make sure you have a hook about the impact for them. They're not going to care about your product and the fancy technology you use to build it. They care about what will it do for me right now? How can you make my life better? How can you improve something in my world immediately with me doing a minimal amount of effort? If you have that kind of hook about that value, you increase the chances that, again, you get their attention, that they will that they will acknowledge it. But even then, even if you do this perfectly, you figure out where their attention is, you latch onto that. You have a strong hook about the impact. It's still not going to work very well. Like, I mean, really good cold outreach has response rates in the single digit percentages. So you're going to have to do it at volume. And one of the most common mistakes I see is people do cold outreach to the wrong people. So if you do cold outreach to someone who might be like, oh, that is interesting, but I I don't buy products. I don't have a budget or I'm never going to use that myself, but it sounds interesting. If you reach out to the wrong people, those rates will be even lower. So you need to qualify and make sure that if you're doing cold outreach, it's to the right people who can actually do something about whatever it is you're bringing up. Because people can have a problem 
but not do, be able to do anything to solve it for themselves. And so if you have a solution, you need to make sure you reach out to somebody who has this problem who can also do something about it. And if you do those things and you're really clear about that differentiation and impact, it can work. I know many companies where cold outreach is by far the leading channel for acquiring new customers and users for their products. But it is an art form that requires a lot of effort, iteration, testing, and a lot of discipline. Because again, no matter what you do, no matter how right you do it, it's just not a very high volume. Uh, sorry, it's not a very high percentage play. But Nick, you really you only think, think it's man? 1%, Sean? 1, 2%? Single digits? I, I see people getting I mean, much better from cold outreach in the double digits, but they're asking for advice. They're not just trying to sell from cold outreach straight. That is true. That is, you're right. I was answering this question with the idea of distribution for your product. And so you're right. If you're, if you're at, if the, if the lower your ask and the more relevant it is, the higher your response rates. And so if you ask somebody for their opinion, that's probably going to give you a better response rate than asking them to take a meeting or try a product out. So your percentages can change depending on what your ask is, but they are generally low. I mean, post product market fit, I very rarely see companies that have response rates of cold outreach higher than 4%. 4% would be really Good. So, but your mileage may vary, I guess. Nick, what do you think, man? You've been in you've been in everything from Bitcoin to startup companies. Um, what is your experience in cold outreach? Uh, you know, let's see. Pancake breakfasts. Uh, well, oh, well, the pancake breakfast. Actually, what was the response rate on that one? I'll tell you this. So every time we start one of these episodes, all I can think about is pancake breakfast because the pancake breakfast is typically a panacea on your startup journey. It was good though. The response rate was quite good for our in-person pancake breakfast. So first thing I wanted to mention, Sean, was I think the golden ticket here is something that you started with, with your response. You want to find folks where they're already spending their time. So number one, you need to make sure you know who you're looking for, and you got to make sure you know where they're spending their time, and then interact with them accordingly. And so of course, in jest, as we talk about our pancake breakfast here, we, were, we had office space in San Mateo, nestled amongst a bunch of investors and fellow startup founders and crypto enthusiasts. And so when we launched our pancake breakfast, we put it right in the midst of really a, uh, a Bitcoin ecosystem, so to speak. It made it easy for us to find our folks. That's a lot different than the cold outreach we're talking about here, but the best practice was still being deployed, i.e. put yourself in locations where your target audience is already spending its time. So that is always a golden ticket when it comes to finding your target audience. Two other notes that I wanted to add as it relates to this are you want to use the own words of your target audience to sell to them. And so when you're doing customer discovery, for instance, and you're talking to many users, ultimately, they're going to be describing their problem and describing the kind of value that they want to be able to achieve when overcoming that problem. Be meticulous about documenting these insights because you're going to use those exact words to then craft your campaigns to market to them. So while your target audience can't necessarily tell you the exact solution they need for the problem, they often can be much better at telling you how they want to be sold and how they want to be convinced to take action. So use their own words to sell to them with your campaigns. And then the third piece of this is deliver value to your target users. If you're running an email campaign, you're coming in ultimately and they're not expecting you to be there. And so you're going to have to do something to get their attention. The best way to get their attention ultimately is to, of course, explain that you are uniquely positioned to solve their problem 
and then actually start delivering value in some capacity. And so to give you an example, and then I'll pause after this, is you can turn your targets into co-researchers. You can, of course, explain to them the problem that you're setting out to solve. You can explain that ultimately you've got some upcoming milestones that you're going to be pursuing and that you want them to be a part of it in some capacity. And so you can give them a variety of ways that they can participate as a customer, perhaps as someone that's on the customer advisory board or some other way that they can get some insight into your pursuit. Then your follow-ups are ways that you can tell them you've made progress towards that milestone. You give them proof. You create some urgency and explain that you are close to reaching some new milestone. And ultimately, you reach that milestone and tell them what's next. So you start delivering them value through the form of information, so to speak, as you are uh, working hard to unlock more value on this problem-solving journey. In doing so, you give yourself a chance. The odds, of course, are not high in terms of everybody converting, but you can give yourself a chance to succeed by delivering value in that kind of way. Well, Ashton, a question for you, just personally speaking, when was the last time you responded to cold outreach that you received personally? And what was it about the cold outreach that got you to respond to them? I probably have to do it every day. And I would say that the emails I reply to are well-researched. So it's people who are emailing me on the right subject. So if you're emailing me about a growth company's round, that's going to be $50 million and it's in a, it's based in North Africa, then obviously you've not done a lot of research on what I invest in. So I'm going to delete that one. But if it's a B2B company at the earliest stages and they're based in New York, then I'm much more likely to reply to that, especially if you perhaps mention some areas of expertise or something else that might draw a point of affinity for us. So I know that you've actually uh, that you're actually interested in doing this meeting. And you're not blasting it out to everybody. Yeah, I I responded to cold outreach recently, and it was a startup that was looking for coaching in a particular market that I've understood and been a part of for quite some time. And so pancakes, it was a, folks. He quite a pancakes. targeted message. That's right. They uh, The toppings they're offering were something I hadn't seen in a long time. So I had to jump at the opportunity. Big picture. I'm they, really disappointed that we haven't issued pancake coins yet. Like this is a, a lost opportunity. We missed the whole crypto wave of off, of selling pancake coins, guys. We need to get I know. But, you know, we're building we're building audience first. I think we'll get another daffodil crypto bubble. Are, are NFTs still a thing? Can we sell NFTs of pancakes? Is that a thing we can do? Uh, it's not. Yes. A, yes. yes. And yes. coin. <laughs> and coin. That's what we need. Uh. <laughs> okay. We're running out of, of time for this episode quickly, but we want to make up one more question here about distribution. Nick, what do we else do we have for our last question here? All right, let's do it. Question three. What are channel partners and how do you use them? Ash, you want to kick things off? Sure. Channel partners are something that I personally really dislike. These are essentially organizations who are going to be in between you and your customer. And the premise is that because they already have zillions of customers, you want to go through their quote unquote channel in order to reach all their customers. And that'll be a distribution silver bullet for you. Now, in industries where there's no other way, like perhaps ag tech, I understand, but I really, really hate channel partners. The reasons are twofold. Basically, they split into two groups. First of all, channel partners who suck. So people that 
are going to give you a channel, uh, but it's going to be nowhere near as fruitful as they promise. People are terrible at selling your product. Maybe they don't really have the full attention of the people um, in their customer base. And so you're just not going to get that much interest. Or the alternative is maybe they do have an absolute ton of users and they are all engaged. Well, if they have that kind of channel, they're going to be aware of how valuable it is and they are going to charge you a really high tax for access to it. And we see this in the mainstream market. So with the Apple App Store, you're going to be charged 30% on your revenue if you sell through their app store. And you just simply can't build a company uh, that's going to go public handing over that kind of revenue share. Uh, so anyone who has the great distribution opportunities will make you pay. So my advice is actually to ignore channel partners, take the meetings if you must, but really the main benefit is perhaps the prestige that you get by being able to announce the partnership rather than the actual customers that you'll generate from it. Sean. Oh, I, I agree. Especially in the early stages, channel partnerships, uh, until you figure out your own business, they're not going to be able to help you because nobody will be able to sell your part, product better than you will. And so until you figure out how to sell it yourself, no channels. And and by the way, they always look like the grass is greener. I can't tell you how many companies think that channel partners like value-added resellers or systems integrators or marketplaces will solve all their problems because this partner will sell the product for me and I don't like selling so it'll solve all my problems. Um, so generally, I you want to go to them in the later stages. Once you're a large business, it's very rare to grow without channel partners. And so once you're a Series C, Series D stage startup, it's actually abnormal not to have channel partners. But in the early stages, you want to avoid it as it's very distracting. Now, there are a few exceptions. I'll just share a few of them. One is if you um, have customers where the cost of supporting them is very high, it can be useful to bring in partners like value-added resellers who want to do the support for you. And so I, I can, there's a few companies I know of that are series A stage where they work with value-added resellers, but those channel partners are not selling the product. What they're doing is doing all the support on behalf of the company. So the company doesn't have to hire a bunch of professional services people to do it for them. That can work. The second case is there's certain products, as Ash mentioned, that you have to sell through channel partners. One example would be um, if you have a DTC, if you're making physical retail products, you have to sell it through Amazon or sell it through Walmart or retailers, and you have no choice. The entire business ends up being channel. Even if you set up Shopify as a website, you end up having to work through channels to get there. So in some cases, you have no choice. In other cases, it can help you reduce your support costs. But as a general rule, if you're not sure that it's not for you, let it go. Channel partners will be there as you're bigger. In fact, the more successful you are, the more channel partners you'll attract because channel partners want more customers and more revenue too. So for example, if you ever want to sell to the US government or any government, it's a big hassle. And it's very hard to get a channel partner to do it for you. But the minute you do sell a government, the channel partners will come out of the woodwork because they want to support you because of how lucrative those contracts can be. So don't worry if you're successful enough, channel partners will find you. They're great. What I call second stage booster rockets. They will help you get into orbit, but they don't help you get off the ground. So you get off the ground on your own, get going. They'll help you get that little extra later on, but, but not early on it. Besides, even if you have them, it's like a full-time job to maintain the relationship with them. And who's got time for that, right? I don't know. Nick, do you have any success with channel partners or are we in unanimous agreement on this one? Yeah, I think that generally speaking, anything that fits into the partnership category more broadly even is so tricky, especially before you've got proof that you know what kind of channels already work for you. 
and how to be able to achieve a good level of growth. And so really, it's hard to look at them as being a solution for any problem you've got until you ultimately have a repeatable system to sell, to grow. And then, of course, you can introduce them and run some tests and see if it's worthwhile. But again, big picture, the theme here is that only at a certain stage can it be this additional fuel to your startup journey. There you go. Well, we finally, look at that. Eventually, we were bound to all agree on the answer to one question. It's happened finally in this episode. Is that the episode is ending? that particular question. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Well, we're looking for distribution on this podcast too. So, hey, we're going to take every hack we can possibly get. <laughs> oh, man. I, here's a quick lightning question for you guys. What is the most unique, crazy distribution method you've seen a startup use successfully? All right, here's a quick hack that you can do. If you've got an existing customer base of, let's say, at least 20 people, uh, run a quick NPS survey via email or text across the entire base. You can even use Google Forms, so it's zero cost to get it set up. Uh, And then anyone that replies with a 9 or 10 rating on your NPS survey, go through their LinkedIn network and then email them and ask them for a a referral uh, to the people that you found in their network who might be a fit uh, for your product. So just a quick way of generating probably uh, a good number of leads from your most uh, excited customers. So I, um, in the very early days of a startup company, this was an enterprise software company. They, um, they showed up to a conference with an ice cream cart and you could get free ice cream if you gave them your business card. And they got tons of business cards because everybody wanted ice cream and it turned into a bunch of leads for them because no, nobody knew their company. Nobody's going to give them their contact information. But if they were giving away free ice cream and it was a hot day and you know what? It worked. And honestly, if you asked me, I would have never guessed that that would have actually worked. So there was a high correlation between leads and ice cream lovers. What was the customer profile? Hey, you know what? And it, Seven-year-olds. And ice cream had nothing to do with the company. <laughs> That's too good. Well, let's see. So the my mind's in the crypto world right now. And so what I'll say that we've seen as a theme here is when there are new platforms and new frontiers, so to speak, often great growth comes with alignment on that, so to speak. And so to give a quick example, um, if you look at the acceleration of communities being built on Discord, some of some great companies and startups have been able to ultimately achieve tremendous growth by being early testers of tools such as Discord in order to build communities, offer rewards, and be able to ultimately create just a vibrant, different type of community that stands out. I bring all this up not to say that Discord would be the solution for that, but the key thing is to be looking at, kind of have a pulse for what kind of tectonic shifts are we seeing in terms of how folks are consuming their time and then aligning yourself accordingly. And so we've seen the acceleration of podcasts. We've seen um, all these various channels for folks and how they spend their time. So being an early adopter and building communities on some rocket ship that's taking off, so to speak, is often a practice that, not a guarantee, but you've seen some startups reach some great heights along the way in doing so. I, I like to point out, Nick finally brought up podcasts as a distribution hack, which is being a podcast, I have to say, Nick, I appreciate you finally bringing that up. Because of course, we definitely do this for distribution. Um, that and stuff. also the PanCoin tokens that we're going to be getting. 
<laughs> it's all about the pancakes. Okay, we're out of time for the startup help desk. I hope everyone's found value in the answers to the questions. I can't believe we all agreed in the answer to the question today. That was a milestone. Nikanash, as always, thank you for your expertise, wisdom, and putting up with my sense of humor. We're here to help folks. We're trying to just dampen down Sean's dad jokes just for a little bit so we can try and get those insights out of his big brain. There it is. Absolute blast as always. Thank you both. And if you have questions, we would love to answer them in a future episode. Please find us on our website, thestartuphelpdesk.com or find us on Twitter, thestartuphd. While the Startup Help Desk is closed for today, it will open again. In the meantime, good luck in building your business.